Hello and welcome to Inner Voice. My name is Masumi Rostad, and I'm the viola player of the Pacifica String Quartet. I went down to Tucson, Arizona, and I had this conversation with my very dear friend, Aaron Boyd. He is the concertmaster of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra, and he actually had me cracking up a lot in this uh, talk. I should say monologue, because he actually stole the mic from me. But he definitely spoke from the heart, though. So I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Masumi. This is Aaron Boyd, and I've taken over your show. Thank you for letting me have the microphone. You're welcome. To anyone who does not recognize my delicious voice, this is Aaron Boyd, and I'm the violinist, and I'm the concertmaster of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra, and I'm sitting here with my dear, dear friend of many years, Masumi Rasted, beloved by all, well, mostly. And we're here to discuss music and uh, some aspects of music that pertain specifically to us. I told you this quote the other night, and it's something I find very interesting. I also think that it has a lot to do with the state of things. Um, I think that my views with regard to music could be considered rather right-wing, and I want to know what you think of this. I'll repeat the quote from the other night. Toscanini, and I don't know have it exactly, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. In essence, said, in life, democracy. In music, uh, in music... <laughs> A, not a meritocracy, but an aristocracy. What does that mean to you? What do you think? You have an opinion. I think that what Tuscanini was saying, that in life, by all means, there should be democracy and free freedom, freedom of everything. But that in music, music requires a sort of divine or not, I don't want to say leader because we get into a strange territory there, but a, a singular point, a, a great inspiration, a, a, someone who inspires and who has the free will and control to make his inspiration work. Now, okay, so in other words, is an orchestra with no conductor, with democratic uh, uh, and free open rehearsal, where everyone can share their ideas, is that, and let's be very frank here, is that and are the results better then let's use Tuscanini, for example, the great performances of the NBC Symphony Orchestra in the 1940s. And let's choose, choose any conductorless ensemble you like. And maybe it's not a fair comparison. But when it comes right down to it, is there a conductorless, democratic, free, un-aristocratized un group where the results are as great as that when you have a great, great, musician leading, and many musicians following. I'm sure there are scores of audience members who would flatly, and I'm sure musicians, I mean, this is anti-contemporary thought. I mean, the idea that we can all make a great statement. Well, I don't necessarily believe that. Can I fairly say that not all of us, particularly myself, can possibly say that I could make the same impact musically as I could doing what I do best, alloyed with, the abilities of a great and inspirational leader. Oh, that brings me to another topic. I think that the idea, the art of the primarius is actually a dying art. And precisely, precisely because it does not fit in with our contemporary ideals of everybody being equal. And I think the fact is, in music, everybody is not equal. And that equality is not good for art. Can you believe that? What do you think? <laughs> You're cracking me up. 
Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. <laughs> am I that or Not am I, but are those ideas that controversial? Are they that? Because we're talking about something that was presumed to be a matter of course only 50 years ago. Is it that controversial now to say that, that like in almost every other aspect of life, there are hierarchies which are helpful? Well, all those models are changing. Yes, and the question remains, is that for the better? Or are we losing as much as we're gaining? Or are we losing more than we're gaining? My, my feeling is yes, we're losing more than we're gaining. Just to be on the record about that. If one wanted to make a desert island list of the greatest recordings, and let me limit it to instrumental recordings, though I'm, you could include anything, really. In my own area of expertise, let me limit it to piano or violin, both instruments which I love very dearly and listen to a great deal, other than singers. If I had to make a list of the greatest recordings that I must have with me if I'm going to be sent to a deserted island, would there be anything included that was recorded past 1970 or 19-something, you know? Or would I have recordings that were made by the great artists of the first half of the 20th century, when obviously recording technology was not what it is now, but the message from the musician was, in my opinion, greater. Okay, so one might say, well, how on earth can you say the message was greater? Well, I think that there's one sinister and insidious cultural movement which is threatening the very fundamental aspect of being a musician, the musician's prerogative and right to make a statement, a personal statement. And that is this infringement on musicians by a growing movement of people who say this is the way this must be played, this is the way classical music must be played, this is the way Baroque music must be played, and it does not involve vibrato, does not involve anything remotely vocal, does not involve anything particularly personal. When we have this kind of gesture, we do, we do this. When we have fast notes, we do this. I, I see that as an infringement on a musician's fundamental right to make a personal statement. So would a violinist like Misha Elman have even been, if he had been born, and these are generally stupid theories, because of course they were born when they were born, and they could not have been born any other time. But if Misha Elman was born in 1988, so he'd be 22 years old now, would it have been even remotely possible for him to have grown up in our contemporary musical culture and have grown and nurtured the unbelievably individual and incredibly powerful voice that he had? That's a good question, and I think I'm going to leave that one out there for us to all ponder. I would consider you to be a violin geek. Your house is filled with posters of violins. You, as a child, would read the Shar catalog in class. The Shar catalog, for those of you who don't know, is a catalog of musical instruments. You are a violin geek. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be a violinist today. I think, actually, what I am is a representative of a slightly earlier type of violinist who simply dearly loved every aspect of the violinist's art. I love every aspect of it. And I think that that's one of the things that I am missing today is a general disposition which does not include a fascination with our instrument, a fascination with every historical and musical aspect of the violin or construction aspect. 
yes, I did go to school with a shark catalog folded under my arm. And yes, that's a little bit unusual. But again, I think that historically, it was more permissible for violence to be absolutely in love with his instrument. I find it harder and harder to have shop talk, for example, with violence, intelligent shop talk, shop talk uh, with regard to instruments. I find that a, a dying aspect of conversation among violinists, violin geekdom is um, a dying read. So actually what's interesting about this is that you're talking about violin geekdom or obsession, a violin obsession as encompassing everything from the instrument construction to playing. Shop talk would be things like fingerings and, um, and ideas about recordings. Do you feel that this is just something that's not shared universally among violinists, this kind of obsession? Is that what you're saying? First of all, yes. I mean, I think it's very clearly an obsession if you look at my house, if you look at my studio. But again, I think that Loving the violin and loving every aspect of it comes out in your music. And I think that if I'm going to be perfectly honest with myself as a musician, I don't think I'm a particularly profound musician. I think what someone might gather when they hear me play, I should put it this way, what I would like them to get from me when I play is, oh, he clearly loves his instrument. Clearly loves the music written for it. He loves the violin. And he can speak on the violin. I, I think that's something that I would like to be able to say that I have accomplished. I speak on my instrument, not necessarily profoundly, but that I'm at home with my instrument. And I think there are musicians who are much greater than I, who don't have this interest in the instrument specifically. They make music on whatever they have. I'm not that. I'm, I'm very much a violinist. And so I'm at home with that instrument. That's kind of an interesting concept, because I think that that has roots much more in the early part of the 20th century. Would you agree? Roots being someone specifically tied to their instrument, or... or Maybe it's even more about the performer than about the, the score. I know where you're going with this, and I think what, what you're getting to is something that I... Uh, again, it's a, it's, I think it's a very humble admission on my part. I don't think that applies to, say, a musician of such greatness as the violinist like Isai and Chrysler and Inesco, who are probably my three favorite violinists. It so happens that they could have made, and very often did make music, on anything that came in front of them. Isai was a cellist, a pianist. And by the way, he expected mastery from his students on all of these instruments, cello, viola, violin, piano. He was a very fine composer, a very inventive composer, a conductor. He was a, a very important conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony in the 1920s. Eugene Isai was a Belgian violinist, born 1850-something, 58, died 1930-something, 33, 34. And he represents uh, the most important link between the 19th century virtuosity and 20th century contemporary violin, violin playing. He's the last link, I mean, the last great major historical link. And he was the first violinist to um, bring together the profundity of the Joachim German school with its tonal aridness and the Sarasate Spanish virtuosity and the French, he brought together a number of schools, international schools, and made one solid, great violinist. I mean, he was a violinist that everyone who heard said was incomparable. Anyone who heard anybody alive, let's say in 1910, when we probably have the greatest violinist, violin playing with the exception of Heifetz, um, said Isai was incomparable. So. There we have Isai, the incomparable genius of many aspects of music. He was not just a violinist, though that was his instrument of choice. Enesco was as great a pianist as he was a violinist, as he was a composer, as he was a conductor. 
to have been in the presence of an Esco was to have been in the presence of somebody with the talent of a Mozart. People cannot forget that. Inesco, I think, was probably the finest and greatest musician of the 20th century. Or Chrysler, who luckily recorded some of his own pieces on piano. And on piano, he is Chrysler, the greatest violinist of the 20th century. So to get back to my humble admission, I don't identify with those great musicians. I think I identify with the B-level violinists, like, let's say, Benno Rabinov, or Tasha Seidel, or David Nadian to name somebody who's still alive. And again, I'm not saying I play on their level or make music on their level. I admire them because more than anything, they were absolutely great craftsmen of the violin. They were singers on the violin. They were crooners and not necessarily great musicians. They were very fine. They did not have the impact of a Heifetz or a Menuhin or a Chrysler or even Milstein. That's as close as I can get to identifying with greatness is saying, I'm not on the A-level, but I identify with the great singing craftsmen of the violin, which is an art which, may I say, at the death of David Nadian, may that be a long time from now, will disappear, I think, forever. So what do you want to do on the violin? Why are you playing violin? What's the point? I play the violin because, as you mentioned, I seem to love it. And I love it for reasons I can't explain, but I loved it for as long as I could remember. I enjoy making a beautiful sound on the violin, and I think that by making a beautiful sound, I'm contributing something of beauty to a rather ugly world. And I also think that because of my very deep interest in the violin, and let me be very clear, I know nothing outside of the violin. I don't think I'm a particularly intelligent person or a particularly knowledgeable one, but the knowledge that I do have is incredibly narrow, but extremely deep. And that is my knowledge of the violin, and recordings, and examples, and the music written for it, and the violinists who played it. While I don't claim to know much of anything outside of the violin, I feel very secure in what I do know about the violin. And because I've been listening so intently and so deeply, and playing, and loving, and reading, I have, you should see my studio. I've got two enormous bookshelves that are stacked double deep with violin books that I've read countless times. And what do I offer? I offer that knowledge, almost like a curator of violin history. Now, the problem with that is that almost nobody cares about it. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert in a knowledge which, A, doesn't really matter. You don't need it to make good music. But it's of vital interest to me because I think that a great deal of the beauty in violin playing is slipping away. So what do you think your role as concertmaster of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra is? As a violinist, as an intermediary between the conductor and the instrumentalists? In the current musical climate, both conductor and concertmaster have been neutered to a certain extent, but it most publicly is the conductor, the music director, which has been whittled away at, uh, in many cases rightly so, to protect musicians from the abuses of power that occurred in the previous 50 years. So musicians, to protect their jobs, had to whittle away the power of the music director to make autocratic decisions. We lost at least as much as we gained, if not more, in that process. The concertmaster has been taken along that route because historically the concertmaster, I think very often, was the sole choice and prerogative of the music director. And I feel very strongly that to this day, the concertmaster should not be auditioned in uh, the traditional way. The choice of concertmaster should be the choice 
100% of the music director, just like a president can choose a, a justice of the Supreme Court and influence that court. Whenever a concertmaster position opens, the music director has a choice. This is my chance to put in a fiddle player that will influence the strings. A fiddle player I love, whose sound I love, whose personality, whose music making I love. Put him in that chair, and if he's a good leader, let's see if he can infuse. At first, the strings, I think the string section is the heart, the soul of an orchestra. Can he infuse that in the musicians? And that used to be, I think, easier to do. For a long time, historically, the concertmaster was by far the best player in the orchestra, by at least the best string player. And during the 20th century, as standards, the average rose, the difference between the two became less pronounced. That said, with the conductor losing a great deal of his authority, so has the concertmaster lost authority, so that we're dealing with a republic of equals, and it's very hard to make fast, effective decisions when everyone wants to have their voice heard. It should not have to be in a fast setting. No, I believe fast is very good. <laughs> I, I, I think that, the, that too much of something can draw it out and kill it. But fine, let's say we had all the time in the world. Nevertheless, you need people to make decisions. And if those people are very fine, the decisions will work. And the orchestra will have a unity, and I believe perhaps a better unity than if everyone had to make a suggestion and then there had to be a compromise. I think compromise is a killer of great art. Do you have anything that you would like to add in closing about the state of the world of music, about where violin playing is headed, where orchestras are headed? Don't be too dire. No, I think there's hope. I think the good news is that I think there's a general trend uh, that I've witnessed uh, historically. I th for example, if this were 1950, there would be one violin teacher you went to. It would be Ivan Galamian. There would be one or two schools you would go to, Curtis or Juilliard. Not even 1950, let's say 1980. There were top five orchestras. And these solid, centralized things are disappearing. There are good schools everywhere. There's good faculty spread out everywhere. There are good and better regional orchestras everywhere as the average goes up. The quality everywhere goes up. But as Misha Elman said in an address he gave when he was given an honorary doctorate, he said, yes, in my lifetime, we've made great advances in bringing the average up. But that has been at the expense of pulling the top down. And this was a speech he made in 1966. He saw that happening 45 years ago. And I think that trend has continued. The average has gone up, up, up. All the while, I believe that the top has been pulled down. That difference between the average musician and the extraordinary soloist, I think, is much harder to delineate. When violin soloists come, they sound fine. And there are very often people sitting in the back stand of the second violin section who can play just about as well, or not better, or have their own statement. So what do we do? In what direction do we go? I would say that personally, my fierce goal is to be as personalized and as unique as a human being can be. That's all we can possibly offer is our uniqueness. And to get away from anything, any group think that suggests that historically they played this way, so therefore I must do this, or at least I should consider doing this. No, in fact, I don't think you should consider doing that. I think you should consider doing something that has not been heard. And the only reason, uh, music like Bach and Vivaldi is still here is because it still fits because of its flexibility. 
So let's show its flexibility. I would love to get away from any type of musical group think, which suggests there's a right way now, that we know now how music of 400 years ago should have been played, that we know now how music of the 1930s should be played. It brings me to a very good closing point. We have recordings of violinists and composers playing their music from the 1930s. We have actual proof of how they did it. And yet, I don't think there's a musician that can replicate that. So what hope do we have of doing so based on texts, this flowery language, ambiguous language? And even if we could, what have we gained by doing so? What have we actually gained by doing the right thing? I say that with quotations. So my plea and my vigorous personal goal is to be as personalized and in love with my muse as possible. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for talking with me. I appreciated that. Thank you for having me.